Welcome to the Not Attend podcast with Mary Griffin. You guys, I am so, so excited for this episode. I think this topic and this guest, especially, is something that's really going to hit home to a lot of listeners, student athletes. Keep your ears open. A lot of wisdom is going to be dropped on this episode. Uh, I have Dr. T with me today. He is a Johns Hopkins trained, board certified adult, child, and adolescent psychiatrist who also specializes in sports psychi- uh, psychiatry and he is a former d1 wrestler um he is also the founder of the mindset training institute and a host of the podcast the mindset experience so we got another podcast host on which is awesome uh he currently serves on the board of the hidden opponent which is an organization that aids mental health support for athletes i'm sure you guys have seen it on instagram it's very well known Um, He also is partnered with USA Lacrosse to integrate mental health education, including an athlete mindset seminar series. So all my lacrosse fans out there get excited. Um, And he also just works closely with elite athletes, coaches, members of the military, first responders and competitive businesses, teaching them mental health tools and skills. So if that doesn't prove it right then and there that I have the real deal on Dr. T, um, I don't know what will. So Dr. T, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for coming on. And for those who still doubt me, then it's my job to make them believe. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. Yeah. I have so much faith that I'm going to learn a lot. So I'm excited and excited to show, have you show your knowledge. So um, I would love to just get to know more about you and your background personally, Growing up, I know we're from the same area, Baltimore. We went to high school um, years apart, but just what, 0.2 miles apart. Um, so that's really fun. But just kind of growing up, what education was like, how did you um, really get involved in psychology and also biology? So you have both of those aspects going on too. Yeah. So I, yeah, I grew up in Baltimore. What's the school right across the street from you? Um, I actually, I didn't grow up going to school there from the beginning. So I went to public school. And then in sixth grade, my parents really wanted us to have, I think, better opportunities and get ultimately a better education. But I really fought it. And I really didn't want it. And I wanted to be with my friends. And I wanted to be with all the kids that I had grown up with. And so initially, it was a big culture shock, going from a public school to a private school. Um, And the reason it was a culture shock was not just the environment and the way people grew up, but it was, I think, the privilege the experiences, you know, everybody's parents knew each other, everybody's grandparents knew each other. And that was really hard. But I was also, and still am on the shorter side, right? So I came in where it really was never an issue. And it was never pointed out. And all of a sudden, it was pointed out a lot. Right. And so coming in being a little bit different, not growing up in the same environment was something that was very difficult. The reason I bring it up in this conversation is because I started wrestling and that was really something through athletics and being competitive in athletics and being dominant in athletics that started to really solidify who I was. And people started to look at me differently. And I started to look at myself differently. And I started to really have the confidence to be able to stand up for myself and know that even though I didn't grow up the same way that everybody else did, that when it came down to it on the mat, everything was equal, right? And regardless of how tall or big everybody else was, when it came down to it on the mat, it didn't matter. And so those were things that kind of just helped me grow in terms of developing my confidence, my mindset, my belief in myself. And as I grew older, you know, that theme sort of carried on, you know, my father was a psychiatrist. So growing up, I was exposed to what he did, but I had no idea what he really did. I thought he hung out with kids. He played games. He had all these toys in his office. So I thought his job was a joke and I pointed it out several times. And so in our senior year in high school, we have to do a senior project, right? They call it an encounter. And I didn't want to do much. I wanted to do something really easy like everybody else. And I said, well, dad, why don't I just work at your job? Because it's really easy. And Mary was the hardest thing I ever did. I worked in a preschool classroom with kids that had all these behavioral disturbances, emotional disturbances, came home every night with a splitting headache. These kids worked me, right? And I was an all-American wrestler, but they worked me. But it was so rewarding. It was so impactful. They invited me to their graduation afterwards. Um, They stayed in touch with me. They wrote me letters. I was only there for three weeks. Um, And that really started to lay the foundation for this ability to impact other people. 
And so that was sort of where the, I think the first seed kind of laid. And then through my other experiences, you know, I grew more and more exposure and ultimately it was something that kind of grew, but my initial passion was to be a teacher and a coach like many other athletes. That's what I wanted to do. And to me doing what I do now combines not only my experience as an athlete, but my mental health experience clinically, um, being a medical doctor, I think has a big impact in being able to understand these conditions and not just, you know, the medical conditions of anxiety and depression and ADHD, but also working with athletes and understanding other medical illnesses and how they play in to the identification of an athlete. And so it all sort of came together and started to grow and evolve, but that's really where it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love, I think you have a leg up in the medical industry, especially with psychology and knowing the ins and out of the brain biologically too. I think, you know, kind of a different side of things and can connect them, which I think is such a cool perspective. And usually we only get one from a psychologist or a doctor, but you really have the power to show both sides of it. So I think that's awesome. And I also really relate to the sense, cause I didn't go to private school up and I only went my during high school. So I went to public school all throughout. And that was a culture shock to me. It's like, Oh, like what's your last name? And I'm like, Oh, I don't know your family. You don't know my family. I definitely relate to that aspect, but I mean, such a cool story, how your passion really grew from something that you were just like, Oh, I'll just get it out of the way. It's my senior project, but it really started something. So I, I love that. I love, um, just your passion. And I mean, working with kids is so rewarding too. It's exhausting, but rewarding. Um, so that's awesome. Thank you. So do you think you wanted right from then you wanted to go into more of a biology side or when was that shift of like, okay, I also want to look at mental health and mental health is something I'm passionate about too. Yeah. I mean, I had that experience and that exposure and I was like, this is great. I still want to be a teacher and a coach. So I went to college, I wrestled in college, division one, and I was like, that's where I'm going. And it wasn't until I started to get further on. So I majored in psychology. I was interested in psychology. I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I took the pre-med classes because I thought it was important to have them. And that gave me options. My parents really pushed medicine, partly, I think, because they viewed that whatever the highest level of education is that you're able to achieve, you should go for it. They also looked at the opportunities that it opens up. They also looked at how hard they worked and how hard they struggled to be able to get through. My father was a physician. He worked really, really hard. It wasn't handed to him. He grew up humble. My mom was in education, but she was in medical education. And so they both saw the value of being a physician, the opportunities, the financial security, all that stuff. You know, and again, at that point, we're in a private school and everybody was either a physician or a lawyer or a businessman. Like that's that's the reality of what it was. And so those things were sort of like woven into the fabric. And every time I started talking about teaching and coaching, they were like, well, but what about this? What about this? And ultimately it was kind of like towards my senior year where I thought, all right, I might have an opportunity to be a doctor. And is that something I want to explore? I took a year off after college. I actually was a teacher and a coach and I gave myself that opportunity. It was during that year. I said, all right, look, let me apply to medical school. Let me see what happens. Because if I have an opportunity to go, then I really should consider that because it's like, if anything in life, if you have an opportunity to do something and you're capable and you're smart enough and you have the ability to impact the world, why wouldn't you at least explore it? But I needed to be serious about it and recognize that it was a privilege. And if I did get in, I was taking somebody else's spot. Right. And this wasn't something they just hand out. So I applied, I was fortunate enough to get in again, wrestling played a role and we can talk about that if you want, but I got in And then it was where I started to think about what kind of physician do I want to be? And so if anybody doesn't know about medical school, everybody who gets into medical school takes all the same classes, right? Then everybody does all the same rotations. So everybody does surgery. Everybody does OBGYN. We all learn how to deliver babies. We all do pediatrics. We all do anesthesia. We all do neurology. We all do psychiatry. We all do all of them. And then we decide we want to specialize in this field. And that's when you apply for residency. And so I looked at orthopedic surgery. I looked at anesthesia. I looked at all these like locker room mentality fields. And that's what I was drawn to, but mostly because of the people and the athletic experience. I loved helping people. I loved teaching and coaching. And so ultimately where I came to mental health and psychiatry was I thought this was a great impact to take my medical background now and my passion to teach and coach and build relationships and really develop something 
that I think was much needed. I also think the mental health field lacks a lot in terms of, you know, the, the image that it portrays in also in terms of, you know, patients and people that, you know, need and would benefit from mental health, but also in terms of providers. I don't think the providers do a very good job of sort of destigmatizing how weird mental health is and how awkward it is. And so inevitably it feeds into the gap. And I thought, well, here I'm a guy that's relatable. I'm athletic. I'm humble. I like to work hard. I like to work out. Like I'm not your stereotypical mental health provider. So if I can come in, I've got this opportunity to fill this void that's not there and really provide a service to young athletes that then potentially would really, really benefit. And so that's really where it came out of. It was kind of like, there is this need, nobody else is filling it. And the people that are filling it aren't doing a very good job, frankly. So why don't I come in? Let me do the best that I can again and impact the world in a whole different way. And so that's how it started. And ultimately, as soon as I came out, like any athlete can appreciate, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the best at what I did. And that was about making the biggest impact. And that's ultimately how I got to where I am. Yeah, I definitely think everyone says it. Oh, being a student athlete looks great on your resume. Like bosses will love that because you're competitive. You're willing to work for whatever you want to strive for. So with that, you're a wrestler. I, in my opinion, wrestling may be the toughest, one of the toughest mentally draining sports. It's one-on-one you're competing for your weight class. You're competing with people on your team. You're competing against other people on teams. So how did that kind of play the role into, um, where you looked at this new opportunity in your life in, um, medical school and getting to your career today? Yeah. So let me preface it by saying my mom hated wrestling. She hated wrestling. She thought it was ugly. It was awkward. You know, the cutting weight, the injuries, the cauliflower ear. I've had reconstructive surgery on my ears and they still look banged up. So she hated it. But when I applied to medical school, my interview was all of five minutes. And in those five minutes, all the guy talked about was wrestling. And all he did was bring up my, not only my achievements, but the qualities that come with wrestling. He talked about humility. He talked about discipline. He talked about determination. He talked about this willingness to continue to try to get better. He talked about this ability to be accountable to yourself, but also work within a team. He talked about not making excuses, continue and improve. He said all those things. And as I'm listening to him, Mary, I'm like, so like, okay, like, isn't this what everybody's like? This is like every day. This is a normal Tuesday. For yeah. Me. I'm like, exactly. I'm like, so thanks for like listing things that are ingrained in what I do and everything that I do. And he said, he said, so I'm, I'm recommending you for acceptance for medical school next year. After five minutes, we didn't talk about my transcripts. We didn't talk about my grades. We didn't talk about biology. We didn't talk about any of that. So then I was like, I so appreciate this, but I don't understand. Can you please help me understand? And he said, all those things you learned in wrestling, he said, they directly translate over to success. He said, the world needs more wrestlers and the field of medicine needs more wrestlers. And that's why I'm recommending you to medical school, because I know you're not going to give up. I know you're going to work hard. I know you're going to. And he said all those things again. And I was like, oh my goodness. So I left, came home. My mom was like, how did your interview go? I was like, I think I got in. And she was like, I knew it. That's why we put you in private school and we stressed education and all this other stuff. <laughs> I was like, no mom, because of wrestling. She's like, I don't believe you. I'm like, I'm serious. And I told her the whole conversation. She's like, you have to be kidding me. And I'll tell you, not only did it get me in, but then when I got there, every time things got difficult, I went back to my athletic experience, my training, the fact that, you know, I could cut a lot of weight in a short amount of time. We don't need to talk about those details, but the fact that I could challenge myself to do things that other people think are undoable, right? The fact that I could put myself in situations where I was so close to quitting and then I got even stronger. The fact that, you know, when nobody else was looking, I was still working hard. I was still doing push-ups. I was still doing, you know, working out all of those things. Like that's what you rely on when things get really difficult. And that helps me get through medical school. It helped me get through residency when I was working 80 plus hours. Right. And it was closer to hundred, but we had to log it at 80 and everybody, and I'm sleeping on a mattress in a old nasty office on Thanksgiving night while everybody else is with their families. I'm eating hospital Turkey and it's horrible. And I'm thinking this is the worst thing ever, but I'm like, you know what? You've eaten worse and you have not eaten before. And you know what? You'll get through this and you just have to take it one minute at a time and do all these. And that's all the wrestling that really kicked in. And so it's been instrumental. It also helps me understand that when people are having a really difficult time, what that feels like. And I don't know exactly what everybody feels like. And I'll never say I know exactly how you feel, 
but I know what it's like to doubt yourself. I know what it's like to question yourself. I know what it's like to be down by one point with 30 seconds left and feel like, wow, this is all going to slip away. And then you have to decide, am I going to go for it? Am I not right? Like I know, and I know when you're up and you think everything is great and you just get slammed on your head. Right. And the whole thing gets taken away from you. I have had all those experiences. And so to appreciate mental health, when people really feel like they just got hit, that to me is not something you can teach in a classroom. You can't teach it in a book. You can't teach it in a residency program. Like that's life experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really served me well. And it's allowed me to be really impactful as a physician. Yeah. I think like the empathy that you have for your patients or for whoever you come across that you can relate to and you have similar experiences is definitely rare in the medical field. And I definitely think it's something that we need to see more of and more tools and uses that student athletes can really use you as an outlet and use you and say, he really does know what it's like because you've been through it and may have been through worse. So um, I think that's very, very rare, but very needed and refreshing, honestly. Um, so kind of sh- switching gears into more present day, what you're doing now, I kind of, for selfish reasons, really want to get into specifically the tools that you, and like advice that you have, but first, um, just talk about your work, the mindset training Institute. What is it? Where did this idea come from? How did it start? So it started a long time ago, but it formally really developed a couple of years ago. So once I got out into practice, I knew I wanted to work with athletes. And it's not the only population I work with. But what happened is I started getting a lot of referrals from different providers, sports medicine doctors, people, you know, athletes post-ACL, post-concussion, post-other chronic medical illnesses, things where they realize, look, this is impacting them and we don't know what to do. Can you help us? Then it evolved into coaches saying, look, we don't know how to coach today's athlete. They talk about being anxious, overwhelmed. Like we think they just need to suck it up, but like, how do we do that? And I'm like, well, so then I would help them figure out parents. Like, we don't know, do we push them? You know, when they say it's too much, do we tell them just to quit? Do we tell them you can never give up? Like, what do we do? So I started developing all these content for different groups. And then all these athletes were coming to me and saying, Dr. T, like I get really anxious before a game or before a match. Um, I get in my head, you know, how do I get my confidence back? I've got this injury. What if I never play like this again? What if I get injured again? And some of them had seen psychologists before and sports psychologists even, but when they would come and I would say, well, what does your sports psychologist say? They were like, well, just believe in yourself and just visualize and be positive. They were just pieces of advice. There wasn't necessarily science or a background behind them of like, what do you do and how do you do it? What does it even look like? So again, I started figuring that out. And ultimately I started developing all these programs. And instead of being this guy named Dr. T that, you know, goes around and gives these talks, which is what was happening. I was like, this really needs to be like a brand. This needs to be a thing. So that's where Mindset Training Institute came in. And it was specifically, I named it Mindset Training Institute because I didn't want it to be specifically athletic related. Like people thought about, hey, put the word athlete in there. But I really wanted to also understand that while, the primary focus was athletes. It really is generalizable because at some point we stop being athletes, right? And at least competitive athletes. And in other ways too, everything we learn in sport, we talk about how it translates over the world. So really that's where I talked about sort of mindset training Institute. And I want it to be an educational concept. So that's really developed where it developed and how it came about. The primary goals have really been all the same, which is really to like help build confidence promote resilience, which to me is a better word than mental toughness, um, to ultimately improve performance, right? Because athletes want to win, but also to help facilitate enjoyment. Because I think when you get to a certain point, especially when athletics become so competitive, it's harder to have fun. And it's easy to be like, just enjoy it, just have fun, have fun out there. But again, that's just pieces of advice. And it's really hard to have fun when there's so much riding on it, right? And you've worked so hard and you don't know if it'll get taken away from you and how you have all this other stuff. So it's such an integral part of it, but how do you teach people to do that? And what are the skills? And so ultimately that's how it all came about. And every program that I do is really geared towards those four kind of concepts, if you will. Mm -hmm. So would you say the mindset training Institute is separate from your average session or therapy session or whatever it may be, because the what's at focus and what is actually like steps take forward are more tangible. Like it's a tangible thing that you're like, Hey, like instead of giving you advice, this is how you do it. X, Y, and Z. 100%. It's like a strength and conditioning session. It's like when you work your strength and conditioning coach, 
right? Or you work with your physical therapist, you work with the athletic trainer, like they help you develop what are the exercises that you need to improve whatever it is that you're trying to do, whether you're trying to work on strength and conditioning, you're trying to work on mobility, you're trying to work on flexibility, like they help you. And whether it's lacrosse or whether it's basketball or whether it's wrestling or football, like they identify what your sport is, what your body type is like, what your goals are, what your process needs to be to get stronger, but also to help minimize injuries, right? All of those things. And they develop a plan and a program and they explain it to you, right? And they explain to you what we're doing, why we're doing these exercises, how many reps, how many sets they show you how to do them. You do them in the session, right? And then you're expected to them outside of the session. That's what we do with everything else. But when it comes to the mind, we're just like, just do this, believe in yourself, visualize. And so to me, Mindset Training Institute really takes that concept and it applies it to the mind. So the programs I developed are very much in that model of a strength and conditioning program. And they're very specific. They're action-oriented. They're goal-directed. I explain why they work, how they work within the mind, how the mind's connected to the body in a language that the athlete understands, whether it's like a six-year-old or whether it's like a 26-year-old pro athlete, right? And once they understand, wow, this is what's happening and this is how it works, and then I show them how to do it and I put it in a systematic way, and then we actually do it in a certain step-by-step process, then they start to see, wow, like this is actually working. This is really cool. And that's when like the confidence goes up. And then they're just like, they want to do it more. And then they become more resilient, right? And even when things go wrong, they can go back and rely on them. And ultimately they see that they're playing better. They're having more fun. Like all those things happen because they have a plan, but nobody really knows how to explain it in a way. So they just say, be positive. Come on, work harder, believe in yourself. Like you got it. Like they say all those things. And then they're like, but I don't have it. I'm trying. Like it's hard. And they're like, no, you just got to keep working at it. Like how often do we hear that? And it's very dismissive and insulting, frankly, because you're trying to work hard. It's just not working. And when you teach somebody how to do it, then they can do it themselves. And it's not like, how do I give them the confidence? It's like, no, they learn how to do it and they can build the confidence and they can rely on it. And it's always there. It's always there. I love that. And I think, I think with one feedback that I hear from my friends or, or even myself, I'm like, I know what I want to do, but like, I just want to be told like how to do, I think as athletes are really told like, okay, guys, like here's your workout. And I think the elite athletes really step in and dive more into like, okay, we're doing hang cleans, but what part of the body does that focus on? What, um, skill does this do? What does it do for me as an athlete? And a good trainer will be like, okay, hang cleans, like they're for speed. They're for, um, explosive. They're explosive. So it's making you faster. It's quicker. So really getting like tangible evidence and facts behind why we're doing X, Y, and Z, I think is very, very helpful, especially for this athlete mind too. I think we're very, um, tunnel vision that sometimes where it's just like, well, why are we doing it? Um, I know that at MTI, you guys really focus on this idea of training the brain, which is similar to training the body. So can we dive more into what training the brain looks like? If you had someone come up to you and was like, okay, like Dr. T I want to get better and, and lacrosse, like how, how are we going to start with that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think part of it starts with education, right? Explaining why it's so important to train the brain. Right. And we know that you know, ultimately for competitive athletes, when it really comes down to it, when you get to a certain point, like that's the difference, right? Sometimes you show up and you're just on and you're playing out of your mind. And another day you show up and you just can't, you can't catch the ball. You can't make a pass. Like that's not physical because you've trained the same way, right? Yesterday you were on fire and today, like you can't make a shot to save your life, right? Like that's mental. And so part of it is helping them understand that most of them get that but then also helping them understand that the brain can be trained just like the body, right? I mean, to some extent, the brain is a muscle, but when we get in these situations, it's ultimately what makes the difference. And so part of it starts with education. And then, you know, it's a step-by-step process of integrating these in a very systematic way. And so some of the concepts I teach, which I know you're getting at, you want to know, like, what am I teaching? Yeah. I want a free therapy session. (laughs) That's what you're trying to get at. Basically is what I'm trying to say. So (laughs) You know, so I have a program that I've developed, right? And there's nine specific skills when I'm working individually with somebody. When I'm working with like a team, there's eight skills because it just lends itself. It's a little bit easier. But some of the concepts we talk about is this idea of how to appropriately and effectively set goals. And it's not just setting goals and it's not just smart goals and it's not all these cool acronyms. Like it's actually about creating a process and how do you do it in a systematic way. But I explain 
what happens within the brain and how the brain learns and why we, if we do it a certain way, it's actually going to become more than an idea and a thought of something we want to accomplish once it actually becomes an actionable, learnable item. We talk about that. I do breathing in a way that I can promise you most people have not done because every time I ask somebody to demonstrate how they breathe and how they effectively breathe, it's different than what I teach them. When I teach them in a different way, they're like, oh, wow. Like, but again, I explain how it works, like biologically what happens, not just about keeping you alive. Like there's a lot that goes into it. Visualization is a big one that people hear about. I know they do it in a lot of college programs, but I also know that oftentimes it's either not done right? When you have time to visualize, most people are just kind of chilling and taking a nap or what's happening is they're sort of visualizing these like end products. Like I score the winning goal. I have this great behind the back shot, like blah, blah, blah. But like, before you do that in physically, like you have to train that in steps. Like you actually have to learn how to do it. So again, part of his understanding the science, the biology, I explain the connections between in the brain and the body and what's happening medically when we do it, when we do it a certain way. We talk a lot about the importance of language and how to effectively use language. Because again, people are like, be positive, but then they think that means you got it. You're great. You're amazing. Those are just statements, right? That we're trying to tell ourselves to feel better. But the reality is the way we think directly affects how we feel and it directly affects what we do. And so I explain how our brains work. I explain the psychology of it. And then I explain how to effectively utilize language, how to deal with setbacks, effectively, how to utilize that, um, how to have fun, right? Like to some extent, you know, we can't control all our circumstances, but we can control how we respond and happiness to some extent is a choice. Gratitude is a choice. So how do we actively focus on things and do things that we're going to be able to have more fun? And why does that important? Not just because it makes the experience enjoyable, but actually when you're having fun, you're more likely to win, mm -hmm. right? And when you appreciate what you're doing, you're more likely to win. So these are a couple of the concepts that I teach, but it, again, it's, it's not as simple as just saying those things and it's speaking, all right, team, you got it. Like, let's go out and crush them. Like, no, it's like an actual systematic way. And I train them in everything I teach are things that I do myself. So I give real examples of things that I do experiences that I have, how I integrated into my day to day. And so all of those things, I think, again, I'm a big, big believer that if I'm going to teach these things, I got to be doing them. And as an athlete, I think that's important too, is if you really expect to succeed, you got to do the work. So I'm still doing the work. I'm still doing the work. And so I show them and I teach them how I do that. Yeah, I love that. I think just like I said before, mentioned that it really is a different perspective and it's so many tools are going into one um, ultimate goal. And I think a lot of athletes would benefit from that. Um, I think what we're also seeing with the idea of training the brain and lots of mental health surrounding, um, sports nowadays, it is increasing. It's becoming way more prevalent, but where do we find the balance of still keeping that competitive mindset and knowing that there is pressure and a, a certain amount of pressure is healthy, but where do we draw the line and where are kind of red flags where it's like, okay, it's not, this is getting unhealthy. I think there's really it's D one it's D one lacrosse is D one sports. So we had to have a certain mindset in one way, but where does it get to be too much? Yeah, I think it's a great, great question. And so part of it is understanding like what's a typical experience and what's an atypical experience. You know, I think it's typical to have anxiety. It's typical to have doubts. It's typical to have, you know, where you get down, where you get demoralized, you get discouraged. You know, when you get an injury, you have a significant medical issue, you're going to have a grief reaction. Like that's a human experience. But I think where it starts to get a little bit concerning or it's something to look out for is if all of a sudden you notice that you're just not interested anymore, like you're not as interested like as you wanted to, or despite the fact that you're putting in more effort, you're actually, your performance is going down, right? If you're starting to get injured more than you used to, um, if you're starting to isolate yourself more from your teammates, right? I think part of what's really cool about competitive athletics really in college too, is like that ability to take a huge university and make it super small. And it's like your team and it's your, you know, your teammates and you study with them and you live with them and you hang out with them and you eat with them. And it's like a big family. And sometimes they're a huge pain in the butt, but like, ultimately you love them. Right. And you get excited when you see them, when you start to realize, like, I don't really want to be around these people, or it's just harder to be around these people. I think those are some things. Um, and when you find yourself like getting down on yourself more, and then you feel bad because you feel bad, right? Like you feel guilty because you feel bad. Then that's also something, because I think 
moods are a fluctuating thing. We can't always be happy. We can't always be confident. Um, those things fluctuate, but if we start to notice that we really get down on ourselves and then we're really down on ourselves for feeling down on ourselves, those are a couple of things. So those are some things to pay attention to. Now, if you don't remember any of that, if you feel a certain way and you're like, I don't know if I should feel feeling this way, then I would tell somebody, I would ask somebody because the chances are that most of your teammates have experienced it at one point and probably a lot of them experienced it to a significant extent. And they'll be able to help you and they'll be able to support you. And they'll probably be able to appreciate that you're validating their experience because they don't feel comfortable talking about it. So I think that's also important. Sometimes we feel like we have to figure out, is this normal? Is it not? Is it typical? Is it not? Is it just college athletics or is it not? If you're not sure, but you don't like the way you feel, say something. And again, then you can problem solve it and figure it out. And sometimes we learn a lot by communicating out loud, right? Like when we talk things out, and we hear ourselves processing it and we get out of our head, we oftentimes can figure it out just by talking to somebody else. That's like not really giving a whole lot of information. They're just listening. So that can be a huge, a big, big difference. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew I had you on for a reason. That was awesome. Um, I think one thing that you said that really struck with me is we have this idea and connotation about anxiety before we go into a game, before a rep that we're like, oh my gosh, we shouldn't be feeling any anxiety, but that's not true. Like you said, it's, it's a certain amount of anxiety is a show of care, but then we are, here are some tools and some questions to ask yourself to know, like maybe you're reaching a limit of anxiety that may not be healthy. So definitely finding like what amount is normal and what amount is healthy for you personally. I think that's something that really stood out to me and that answer. And I think a lot of people will take away from that. When what's normal for you is going to be different than somebody else, right? That's the other thing to understand is we compare ourselves to other people where they don't get anxious. They don't look like they're anxious. Most of the time they're anxious, right? It's a very, very typical experience. I actually equate it, Mary, to like having a sibling, right? Like a lot of people can identify with having a sibling and how annoying they can be at times and how you wish you, you know, sometimes when you're younger, you're just like, man, I just wish this person wasn't around, but like, you're not going to get rid of them. Like you have to learn how to deal with it. And once you learn how to deal with it, right? And you figure it out and you know when to ignore them, when to pay attention to them, like you can tolerate them a lot better. And sometimes you even enjoy having them around and they motivate you. That's kind of like anxiety. So I think of anxiety and doubt a lot like those annoying siblings that once you realize they're not going anywhere and you kind of figure it out, they're less threatening, they're less uncomfortable, and you can actually use them to motivate you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I have a lot of siblings, so I la- so I'm going to label your anxiety, your doubt, <laughs> your anxiety, <laughs> get out of my way. <laughs> um, yeah, but speaking of anxiety, uh, let's talk about performance anxiety. I think that's something that I might say performance anxiety probably once every day. And I think it's really prevalent amongst my team, amongst people um, nowadays. So what exactly is performance anxiety? That might be a term thrown around a lot and we might not even be using it correctly. What does it look and what does it even feel like for athletes or who you see? So one thing I think is important to understand that a lot of times we say, and we say it trying to be helpful, but it's not always helpful that like it's in your head. It's just in your head. Yes. Anxiety is a brain-based condition. It's a mental state, but it's also a physical state. So we have stress hormones that you know, are activated through our brain and then they travel through our body. So when we get that feeling like where we're feeling dizzy and lightheaded and we're feeling nauseous and we're like, I don't feel good. What if I throw up? Like that's all real. That's absolutely real. It's a very real physical reaction. So part of it is it's understanding, look, it's a mental and a physical state. Um, Usually it's because of a fear or a perceived fear of something, right? Now that could be like a threat, but it could also be like, what if I lose, right? What if I'm not good enough? What if the other team is better? right? Those can be things that are extremely threatening to an athlete. Like we are scared of losing, right? And a lot of times we play not to lose rather than playing to win. We see that all the time. And so that fear or that threat of not being good enough, of being a fraud, of letting yourself down, like all of those things are real perceived threats. And so what happens is essentially when your brain perceives a threat, like you have a game coming up or you have whatever, and you start thinking of like, what if I'm not good enough? What if the other team's better? What if I don't play? What if coach pulls me, you know, if I let in a goal and my save percentage is not 50%, like I'm going to get, you know, all these things that we have, right. That we look at as these predictors or definitions of success. We now start to perceive them as threats because if we don't meet up to them, then, you know, we're not, then, then essentially like we're going to, you know, we're going to fail. Right. 
And so we start to have these experiences. And a lot of times then we draw on previous experiences that we failed. And so the interesting thing too, is the way it works is there's like, you know, not to get too, too scientific, but there's a lot of parts of the brain that get involved. So you have like the amygdala, which is your emotional center. That's like flags, like, oh my goodness, something big is coming up, like, holy crap. And that just gets really emotional. It's all emotion, right? It's all emotion. Then when that signals, it signals another part of your brain that just starts like shooting signals to the rest of your body, right? Chemically and neuronally. So it's like, Hey, get ready, get ready. But it's also like all these chemical signals. So that's when you get like your stomach hurts and you get lightheaded and dizzy and your heart rates. And then you get another part of your brain. That's like, wait, have we been there before? Like, what about this? What about that other time we failed? And wait, like, we know that team is really good. Like they're ranked blah, blah, blah. And we know that, you know, Charlotte North is coming back. So what does that mean? And blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, like the whole country is in fear, right? Because a one person is coming back. Like, yeah, I'm like scared of her. It's okay. <laughs> right. Like, but at the same time, so we draw on all these experiences and man, that, that shot she made, you know, in the finals last year and that other thing she did. And so we start like pulling all these memories and it's really interesting because this is worth mentioning that our brains process things in terms of emotional experiences. So if you think about things in your life, either when they were really, really positive or really, really tragic, regardless of how much time it took, we remember those more than everything else, right? So now what happens is we draw upon all those things and those are the memories we have. And those are the things that we're scared of. So that's everything that we're thinking of. And now the quote unquote performance anxiety is it's in the context of needing to perform, but the anxiety is very much there, right? And then it becomes harder to sort of like prepare yourself or to relax yourself or to stay calm or to be confident or tell yourself you got this, right? Like all those things we try to tell ourselves and we're like, you got this, stay calm. But really in our head, we're like, you're going to fail. Like you suck. <laughs> like you're not good enough. Like, and so it becomes this like huge battle where you got like this stuff going on in your head. And like, remember I told you the way you think affects how you feel, right? The way you feel also affects how you think. So now these emotions like flare up and you can't think. And then you're like, but what about this? What about this? And it just starts flaring up. So it becomes like this complete disaster of a state where you're just kind of like paralyzed by the anxiety that's already started before you've actually even gone out there. And it's very common, by the way, it's extremely common. Yeah. I had no idea how many, like when you said that, I'm like, duh, why didn't I think of that? But how much memories actually play into performance anxiety? It's, it's, we felt this feeling before this has happened to me. So what if, what if I do it again, then this is going to happen. I, I did not know how much memories played into that. So that's something new that I'm like, I, yeah, I've been doing that. Right. So Oh, and sometimes it's memories that haven't even happened. Like you start, you play teams you've never played, but you have these memories that you draw upon. And then these memories of like already what the outcome is. And so then that plays into it, but it hasn't even happened yet. So, yeah, I mean, it just, it really drives it. Yeah. Would you say there's different dynamics of performance anxiety? There's the performance anxiety that you get before going into a game or before scrimmage and you're getting that tense feeling and scared. And then is there a performance anxiety that you could get perhaps during like right in the moment? And then is there also a performance anxiety that you could have after the fact where you dwell on your mistakes? Yeah. I mean, I think I would say yes and no. I think yes, in the sense that it can affect you in different ways, in different times, in different circumstances, but no, in the sense that they're all variations of a similar biological and psychological process. So here's why I say that. I think sometimes in mental health, we get real we start subtyping everything. Do I have this or do I have this? But I think I have this. Is it this kind of anxiety or is it that kind of anxiety? Is it this kind of depression or is it situational or seasonal? Like when you feel terrible, you feel terrible. And yes, like there's qualifiers, right? But at the same time, the real thing is that you don't like the way you feel and you're overwhelmed and you're anxious. So I think it's helpful to know which circumstances because then you can adapt and deal with them differently. But I also think it's important that if we start really trying to delineate what kind of performance anxiety we have, then we're going to get anxious about trying to figure out what kind of anxiety we have. And then it just, you know, it snowballs from there. Yeah. So with that, would it be kind of counterintuitive to, or counterproductive to try to figure out where your performance anxiety stems from? Like, can it stem from a coach? Can it stem from a misplay that you happened before? Is that even useful to do? It depends who you ask. 
you're asking I'm me? asking you. <laughs> you're asking me. I think it's helpful only if it allows you the opportunity to do something about it. But I think sometimes we spend so much time trying to figure out why we feel this way that then we get stuck. Maybe it started with a coach that was really difficult. Maybe it started with a parent. Maybe it started with a performance one time that you thought you were on and you just, you weren't, right? But the reality is, again, you're still here now. And if those experiences help you delineate what could I do differently or what can I learn from it, then yes, it's helpful. But if not, then I think it still comes down to like, well, what can I do about it? Because if we focus so much on our thoughts, then that's also going to limit our ability to do our actions. So I think sometimes... I say this a lot and it's interesting. I think it's interesting because I'm a mental health person, but I always talk about how sometimes we think too much and we feel too much. We don't do enough. Right. And I think when we find that we're really getting stuck in our feelings and we really get stuck in our thoughts and that's not helping us, I think sometimes we just need to go to the action and it's like, so what can we do about it? Right. And there's a lot of things that you, one can do to be able to minimize, right. The experiences of performance anxiety and I'm guessing you're going to ask about that. So, oh yeah, that is, you know, me too well. So we're in the performance anxiety. We're feeling it. We're like, oh my gosh, it's happening. What do I do now? So let me back up because I think if you really think about it, you know, it's likely to happen. Then you, there's even things you can do ahead of time. Right. So I think part of it is because a lot of people are like, what if I get this? What if I get that? Well, why not just create a plan? It's like, well, what if we're playing, you know, what if we're playing JMU and they come at us this way or this way? Like, why not just come up with a plan and say, so when they do this, this is what we're going to do. When they do this, this is what we're going to do, right? When we play UVA, this is what they tend to do. So we're going to attack them this way. If you have a plan, then if it doesn't happen, you continue to play your way. If it does happen, you adapt because you already have a plan, right? So I think that's an important thing. And that lowers the anxiety because now you're like, we have a game plan, whatever they throw at us, we're ready. We say it all the time physically, why not do it mentally? So it's also like part of it is having a plan, having a routine, having a pregame ritual that allows you to be able to focus your thoughts on what you're doing next on your actions, right? So if you are focusing your thoughts on your actions and it's like, I'm doing this action and this action and this action, then I think that helps a lot. You and I, we've talked a lot about our friend, Kylie O'Miller. So we should give her a shout out, but Kylie, we love you, Kylie, (laughs) right? Kylie has a pregame ritual that I don't even know if she knew she had, but, you know, with putting her jersey on, putting her eye black on, now she tucks in her jersey, right? Like it becomes this process that as she's looking at herself in the mirror and she's putting her eye black on, she's getting into that game mode. She's starting to lock in and it's minimizing all the doubts, all the fears, all the anxiety, right? So ha- I'm not saying everybody needs to put eye black on, but I think that if you have a pregame ritual that you know what kind of music you like to listen to, you know when you like to stretch, when you like to warm up, how you like to warm up, you can integrate that still within whatever you're doing as a team. That helps a lot. I think when you get into that point where you start to have it, then there's some other things that you can do. Breathing can be effective if it's done effectively, right? Any of these things can be effective if they're actually done effectively and you've practiced them before. The problem is sometimes we wait in that moment and now we can't think and then we're trying to tell ourselves to relax. We're trying to tell ourselves to breathe. We're trying to tell ourselves to be positive. And these aren't things that we've drilled. So I think if you drilled some of these things before, then when you need them, you can utilize them and draw upon them a lot more effectively. Um, The reality is too, is if all of that fails, sometimes when we get stuck in our own head and we doubt ourselves, right? The best thing to do is to actually go and support somebody else, right? So if you feel like, I don't know if I can do it, I don't know if I can do it, but I see Mary standing next to me and be like, Mary, how you feeling? Like, you got this, like, you're awesome. Like, blah, blah, blah. Well, then she's going to turn around and be like, oh, thanks. Like, how you doing? Blah, blah. And all of a sudden you get out of your head because you focused on an action of paying attention to somebody else. Like, and that's how you ignore something. The way you ignore something is by paying attention to something else, not just saying, ignore it. Right. So now you focus your attention to something or somebody else. You focus your emotional energy on somebody else and making them feel better. Inevitably, it makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they start supporting you. And now you don't feel so isolated. So that's a little trick. I, I like that. I mean, that's like a two birds, one stone type of thing. It's helping you, but it's also helping the person next to you. So I really like that. Um, going back to the idea of rituals and getting ready in a routine. Um, is that something that works because our brain likes repetition and we like patterns and we are, we like what we're comfortable with? That's exactly what it is. So when we have a sense of comfort and we know what to expect and we have a routine, 
Like we, we, that's what we focus on. So we're used to focusing on it. We know what comes next that calms us down, but we, we like comfort, right? We like a little bit of like novelty and stuff, but we still like comfort. We still have our favorite foods, our favorite restaurants, our favorite jams. When we come home, we still want our mom or dad to make our favorite meal, right? If we come home and they're like, Hey, things have changed. Like for Thanksgiving, you know, we're going to have this instead of this. You're like, what? That's not Thanksgiving. Like, no. And what about the mashed potatoes? What about the sweet potatoes? Like, no. And this has to come out first. Like we need to do it this way. Like that's how we think. And so if you create that ritual, then your brain knows what to expect. It knows what's coming next and it can just focus on that. And it just, it's a sense of calm and comfort and peace. Um, and that can be really, really important. But if you just come up with the ritual the day before, it's not going to be authentic. And if you come up with somebody else's ritual because it looks cool, that's not going to be authentic. So it's really got to be something. And sometimes it's trial and error and you figure out what music you like, when you like it, and how you listen to it. And like, Everybody has their own rituals, right? And and you see it in these high, high level athletes. Like some of them are taking a nap before games. Some of them are like dancing. Some of them are listening to like heavy music. Some of them are just listening to classical music. You're like, wait, how do you listen to that? Like, Like, how does LeBron James read young adult novels before he goes out and plays? Because like, that's his routine. That's what he does. Like some people lay out all their clothes, like literally head to toe, exactly what they're gonna wear in what order. That allows them a sense of comfort. They can visualize what it's going to look like. They know exactly what they're going to look like. So everybody has their own quirks, but find what works for you. And if somebody else doesn't like it, just beat them on the field. And then they're going to be like, oh, I guess that worked. <laughs> that works for you. I like that. I like the idea of kind of getting your own group of things and what works for you might not work for the other person. Like we love Kylie, but I don't know if I can rock the the winged eye black. I don't know if I'd have the bone structure for that one, but it works for her, obviously. So um, I really like that. I like that idea. And I think I'm in my head, I'm starting to think of things I already do, but want to also instill for my pregame routine. So um, kind of under the same umbrella of performing anxiety, my mom was begging me to ask you about this. She thought this was going to be so interesting. So I'm excited to hear but kind of this new era of performance anxiety and this new branch of it is media. I think we are so heavily influenced by the media today and especially with sports and professional athletes and even just like sports like lacrosse growing so much. There's so many networks to watch it on. So let's talk about how that platform elevates performance anxiety. Um, what have you seen personally? Like what have you seen any significant difference that media has portrayed with anxiety in sports. Oh, definitely. I think it's definitely increased it, right? Because I think part of what we're seeing is that that perceived threat or fear of failure or that other people are doing more than you or other people are better than you. And I think what happens with media and social media is it's easier to portray that you're better, that you're working harder than everybody else, that you're you know, in better shape than everybody else, that you have better facilities, better uniforms. Like we got new unis, like check out our new, this, check out our new, that, like check out our new facilities. Like, and so what happens is it's easy to look at those people and be like, wait, they have no uniforms. Like they have better facilities. Like they must be better. Like what's going on over there. Right. And the reality is like, nothing's going on over there. They just got new uniforms. Like, but if you don't know it, then you can focus more on yourself and what you're doing and your process, right. And your rituals and your routine. And that's going to allow you to feel more confident when we start getting external and extrinsic and we start focusing on other people and what they're doing, that takes it away from us. And so inevitably we give them emotional power and we give them confidence. We give it away. And now we're worried about like, what if we're not good enough? What if, you know, they beat us and, you know, wait, they traveled here and this is what their schedule is. And how are they flying everywhere? And we're taking a bus. Like, look, at the end of the day, as long as you get there by game time, like, focus on those things, right? Focus on the people in the locker room, focus on your teammates, your coaches. So I definitely think that it amplifies everything. You also see it not just in athletics, but performance anxiety in terms of like going out, like going to social events, right? Like we see it a lot in high school and college kids. Like you see everybody else. It looks like they're having the time of their life. And then you're like, wow, like what if I'm not good enough to be there? If I show up there, like, what if I'm, you know, what if I'm not funny enough or cool enough or good looking enough? Or I don't have the right clothes because it looks like that. And so I think it, it breeds it. I think sadly though, a lot of it is probably because of the performance anxiety of people posting, right? Because we're not comfortable. So then we're posting about how great we think we should be. 
right? And then other people see it. So it kind of just breeds this culture. It is what it is, right? I think it's a cool way to connect. It's a great way to keeping people accountable. It's an awesome way to cheer, you know, your teammates on and people you grew up with that all play at other schools. But also I think keeping it in perspective is also important. And at the end of the day, like you're the one who has to put on your uniform. You're the one who has to grab your stick in the example lacrosse. Like you're the one who has to show up. And at the end of the day, when you take all that stuff, you're the one who has to look in the mirror. So if you're comfortable with who you see, that's going to minimize your anxiety and you're going to be more confident. But if you're not comfortable with who you see, then that's something to pay attention to. Right. Um, this just made me like unlocked a memory, but this was a year ago. So not Virginia Tech lacrosse right now, just preface that out there. But I remember last year we were told like as motivation, don't show up on this person's highlight reel that is your motivation. Like, what are you going to look like on TV? Like, if you want to be motivated to be better, like think about how the media and t- like the audience is going to look at you. And I don't know if that worked for anyone, but I just thought like, I don't know if that was the best way to go about it. Um, and I do think that kind of instilled even more anxiety. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, there are people watching from home. It's, it's so accessible nowadays. So I think that's a whole other level that a lot of athletes had to really think about. And even just like looking at the stands during the game, you're like, holy, there's a lot of people are here. Um, so I definitely think the media can get in your head a little bit. Yeah, yeah no, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I told you earlier that I'm big on language and how we use language. So I'm actually big on not using the word don't because don't instills doubt and it instills fear. And actually then when we think about what we don't want to do, inevitably we end up doing it. So if it's like, don't mess up, don't turn the ball over, don't end up on that person's highlight reel. You're going to mess up. You're going to turn the ball over and you'll be on that person's highlight reel. But if it's more about what to do, what you want to do. So I want to keep possession. I want to continue to work hard. I want to keep pushing the ball, right? I want to focus on finding the open teammates. I want to be a great teammate. Like if you focus on those things, then inevitably you're going to create your own highlight reel. So instead of worrying about somebody else's and where you don't want to end up, focus on what you do want to do. And that's, you want to create your own highlight reel. And that's within your own head because that's where the experiences and the memories are going to be. That's where you're going to replay it right? Like that's what we talked about. Like, so if you create these amazing memories in these, I think focusing on the process, I think that we focus so much on outcomes and what we want to accomplish and what we think other people want us to accomplish that we get away from the process of how to get there. And we talked about routines. We talked about rituals. We talked about creating a stepwise plan within my mindset training. So I think if you have a process for everything you do and you focus on that, the outcomes will take care of themselves And you're going to be much better equipped to actually get the outcome that you want. But if you had to give one piece of advice for student athletes, what would you say to them? I think focusing on the process. I think that we focus so much on outcomes and what we want to accomplish and what we think other people want us to accomplish that we get away from the process of how to get there. And we talked about routines. We talked about rituals. We talked about creating a stepwise plan within my mindset training. So I think if you have a process for everything you do and you focus on that, the outcomes will take care of themselves and you're going to be much better equipped to actually get the outcome that you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay. And then what are your hopes for how society will view mental health in the years to come? I love that question. I think right now mental health and wellness is a big topic, but it's also a box that everybody wants to check, right? It's a box that everyone's like, Oh, we're dealing with that. We had a seminar once. Oh, we've got somebody on staff that helps our athletes. But you and I both know that a lot of times it's just like a really cursory lecture or somebody popping in and saying, hey, if you're not doing okay, come find me or it's okay not to be okay, come find me. And then like that's it. And so I think I really want mental health to be something like the way we handle strength and conditioning, the way we handle nutrition, the way we handle academic support, that it's not just a box. It's an actual program that really helps empower young people to be able to navigate it and not just say it's okay to feel this way, but actually help them be able to navigate it so they don't have to feel that way. And if they do, they're able to do something about it because that's what we do with everything else, right? Like we've provide the best facilities for our student athletes to learn, to train, to get nutrition. Like it's amazing the resources we provide them, but ultimately when they don't play the way that we want to play, it's, it's all mental, right? It's a lot mental. Let me put it that way. It's not all mental, but the reality is we invest so much money and time and effort into everything else. And then we bring people in and then we don't have enough resources for them to be able to help empower them as people. So we've empowered them as athletes and as physical beings, but not as mental beings. And that ultimately I think is just 
again, I think that's very short-sighted. So I want it to be something that's integrated and really is a big part of the experience so that athletes come in with the support that they need. They leave with all the education and resources they need. Yeah. I definitely think we're missing that how aspect of how do you actually get there? Um, I, th- I really like that. Yeah. Um, and we talked a lot about today, just from the student athlete perspective of themselves, but from an outside perspective, whether it be a coach, a parent, a friend, how would, how would you say like to go about someone who is struggling with mental health? I mean, I think again, if you're identifying, you don't feel the way you want to feel, or other people are saying that, then I think it's, it's at least important to like have conversations, right? Because I think when we have conversations, we're able to learn a lot about our own experiences just by talking about them. We're able to learn about other people's experiences. We're able to find ways. A lot of times I think we feel so isolated, so alone. And so the thought of actually accessing support is incredibly daunting. And the reality is sometimes it's hard to access support. There aren't as much resources and supports available as there should be. And that's a whole nother conversation. But I think the reality is that within ourselves, if we have these conversations and we reach out, then that feeling of isolation is going to go down significantly. And the ability for us to support each other and at least be able to tie that gap and work together to be able to find resources a lot better than a person who's really struggling and has trouble even thinking about what they're going to do next to now have to go and access support and get help, right? Like, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're being triple teamed, right, it's going to be hard for you to score a goal. But if you know that there's other people there and all you got to do is get the ball to them and things are going to open up, they're more likely to score. And then you're more likely to score. So why don't we do the same thing with mental health? Yeah. Yeah. when you put it that way, it's like, Uh, no brainer. (laughs) Um, okay. Last question. I ask everyone that comes on the not attend podcast, but what is one thing you are trying to grow or better yourself in? All right. So I'm not a 10 either. Right. Which means (laughs) I need, I'm trying to work on my, my own mindset. So again, like I said, everything I do, everything I teach, I live it. So I'm also trying to continue to focus on the process because like anybody else, I get caught up in outcomes. I'm trying to remember to be patient, to be grateful for what I have. I'm trying to actively integrate that. So everything that I do, I want to get better at. And the minute I think, hey, I'm great, I'm the best, that's when I'm going to fall, right? That's when actually my confidence is going to go down because I've gotten a little bit too arrogant. So I think that humility and the ability to know you can always work on your own mindset And if you get better at it, then you can teach other people more effectively and people are going to listen to you because they constantly see you that. So, you know, if you follow me on social media and stuff like that, you'll see like I'm out there, I'm hustling, I'm grinding, I'm working out physically, I'm working out mentally, like I'm doing it because I know that people are watching and I know I'm accountable to them. But like, if I'm going to teach this stuff, like I got to continue to stay relevant. It doesn't matter that I was a doctor or that I am a doctor. It doesn't matter. I was a former D1 athlete. Like those things look great on the wall, but they don't do anything in the office when you're working with somebody or on the field. So you got to be relevant. And that means like parents and coaches, if you expect your kids to like, listen to you, you got to do the work too. You can't just say, do this. Cause I'm the parent or I'm the coach. Or I said, so like, no hustle, do the work. If you want them to be positive, you be positive. If you want them to talk a certain way in a certain tone, then you need to talk in that way, in that tone. Like that's so important. And I think that that's a big, big thing that I continue to work to get even better and better at. Yeah. Teach by example. I love it. Um, that's awesome. I'm excited to see where that journey takes you. And I appreciate you also putting in the work just as much as the people that come to you are putting in the work. So, I mean, I know everyone listening, you guys got some wisdom and some knowledge from Dr. T. I know, I feel like I'm ready to take on the world after this. I'm like, I am the mentally, like I got it. Um, so thank you so, so much for coming on. And thank you for everyone who listened, follow him on Instagram. I'm going to tag him on all the posts, check out what he does. His work is awesome and really, really impactful. So everyone, like, I know this episode was amazing. So I just really appreciate you coming on Dr. T. Listen, I appreciate it. I'm just going to go ahead and invite you to my podcast now. Oh so yeah. That now that we said it on the air, it's got to happen, but no, I, I appreciate you. And I appreciate everybody that's supporting your podcast and everything you're doing. I think it's incredible. I think your story is incredible. But again, like if we continue to show that we're willing to learn and we're willing to teach and through these experiences like this, I think we can all empower each other and overall we can grow in sports, but also in life. Yeah. Well, you guys heard it here first, the mindset experience pod for pod switch. I'm excited to come on. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me. It's going to happen now, but I'm excited for the work that you do and just 
we're making a change out there. So I really appreciate that. Um, everyone listening, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you.